Uh, I'd like to just extend a welcome to everyone at the Allison and Brentwood campuses who are watching this on video. And of course, uh, it's great to be here amongst you uh, here in Allison campus tonight. Uh, and as Jen said, we're continuing on with this uh, journey of looking at the three-person nature of God. And ultimately, what we want to do is see how that connects with um, how we live and, and what difference does it make. One of the great questions I learned um, when I was doing graduate uh, studies at McMaster was, when the prof would look at you and then in response to your great theological statement and say, so what? You know, it's a very simple question, but I think it's one that we all need to answer. So what? And so as we look at this idea of the three-person nature of God, I think the question is, well, so what? What difference does it make, really? And as we start to unpack the, uh, what the Bible teaches us, we start to see that it makes a world of difference how we understand God and who we understand God to be. I mean, the first reason why it's important is because this is how God has revealed himself to us. And that's the only way that we can know God. I've been looking at analogies about the Trinity. You know, there's a zillion of them, it seems, analogies, uh, ways that we can try to make comparisons about you know, God's three-in-one nature. And the reality is, is that they all break down. You know, they're, some of them are cute, some of them are interesting, but the more we think about them, the more they just break down. They, they turn into some inferior notion of, of the nature of God. The reality is, is that um, if we think about it for just a second, how could an apple with the skin and the fruit and the core really sum up the nature of the invisible and almighty God who called everything into existence, who created DNA, who created the ecosystems of our planet, who created planetary orbits so that we're not going too fast or too slow, but just right in that Goldilocks zone, who balanced galactic mass, matter, dark matter that we haven't even understood until recently, yet God, with a word, spoke this into existence. And this is the one who reveals himself to us in Scripture. How can we expect a little analogy like water or a three-leafed clover or anything in this world that God created to truly represent the mystery of who he is, of his very nature? We don't have to ponder it very long to realize that there is really nothing that compares to him. Oh wait, I think there's a Bible verse that says that, that nothing compares with God. That there is no one like him. In fact, we sing worship songs like that. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we don't really have great illustrations or great analogies as to you know, the three-in-one nature of God. It's beyond what our minds really could come up with on its own. It seems just strange. And yet, 
Much of the things that God has revealed to us in Scripture are somewhat strange. I think of Jesus saying to us, love your enemies. Well, that's not intuitive. You know, we don't just do that naturally. If someone hurts us, if someone is lying about us, if someone is doing something to really injure us or someone that we love, it's not intuitive for us to just go over and just lather them with grace and love and forgiveness. That's not natural. That's not normal. But yet we accept it as right because Jesus Christ revealed this to us. There are many things in this life, this Christian life, this life of following Jesus that don't always make sense, but yet we know it's how God has revealed himself to us, and we accept them. We accept these truths. We actually build our lives around these truths. What, what, in what universe does it make sense, really, to give away our hard-earned resources to show our faith and love in God, to declare that we believe God is the one who ultimately provides for us. So we sacrificially give of the hard money that we've earned to go into a, a church so that, yes, all the great works of ministry can happen on a practical level, but at the faith level we do it because Jesus said, you do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We do it as an act of faith to say, I, God, believe that you will provide for me, and I will be faithful in my life to be generous, even as you have been generous to me. We look to Jesus and we understand him in the way that John's gospel understood Jesus when in John 1.18, John says that Jesus is, the, is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart and he has made him known to us. There's only one who really knows God and John says, and that is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart and he has made him known. You see, the only way we could ever understand or know even a little bit of this God who with a word from nothing created everything with all of its order and beauty is for that one to reveal himself to us. We won't get it otherwise. And so as we look to Scripture, what we see is God revealing himself as the one God and then in New Testament, we see over and over again God revealing himself as three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Dave went over a few passages last week highlighting that simultaneous reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time in the same event of the baptism of the uh, Annunciation uh, and in, in Transfiguration, different places in Scripture, you have the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all existing in that one event, all there. One God, three persons. 
And so this idea of the one and the many is really something which we feel. We feel that tension, really. And the only way that we can resolve it is simply by accepting it. Accepting the fact that God has revealed himself in this way. And because he's revealed himself in this way, it must be important. Otherwise, God wouldn't have done it. He would have realized we're simple people and, you know, just God is one is, is super fine. We can handle that, right? But God felt that wasn't enough for us. We wouldn't understand who he was fully if we didn't understand that triune or three-person nature that exists within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this tension that we have mentally with this one and many is something that is reflected even in our own persons, right? We, we like being alone, and yet we get lonely, and then we need other people, and then that's hard, and then we like being alone, having a break, and then we get lonely, and then we need other people. I mean, we get that tension of one and many. We know that both are necessary, just within ourselves and our own connections. In fact, there was an article that was written in the Globe and Mail this, lot, this week by Elizabeth Renzetti, and she says basically that loneliness is a crisis that's looming for Canadians. And I wanna just make a couple of quick uh, quotes from her article, and you can find that um, online. I believe we put a Facebook post out uh, earlier in the week for those who would like to have read that, and those who did, Good job. In the, in the West, she writes, we live faster, higher in the air, farther from our workplaces, and more singly than any time in the past. Social scientists will be struggling to understand the consequences of these transformations for decades to come. But one thing is clear, loneliness is our baggage, a huge and largely unacknowledged cultural failing. People are lonely, and because we understand loneliness as something of a weakness, nobody talks about it. There's a quote in, the, in this article about how a therapist had been practicing for 30 years, and no one, not one in 30 years, came into the practice and said, I'm here because I'm lonely, and yet it only took five or 10 minutes of conversation before that's actually, it came out that that's actually why they were there. They were feeling that deep, deep sense of loneliness. But they couldn't name it because they had this vision of being that kid in the cafeteria, sitting at a table eating lunch all by themselves. Of being that kid who, when the baseball team was picked, would stand there until they were all alone and then there would be an argument as to who got to take that person. And we know that feeling, some of us. Maybe not in that area, maybe not in sports, maybe in academics. If not in academics, maybe in something else. It doesn't really matter where the area is. We've all felt that experience of rejection, that, that, that experience of someone judging us, that experience of not making the cut. And this adds to the lonely factor and that we don't name this incredible reality in our culture. She goes on to say, in some cases, isolation is taken to gothic extremes. 
In Britain, a young woman named Joyce Carol Vincent died and wasn't discovered for three years. Neighbors ignored the strange smell coming from her apartment, and when her body was finally found, the TV was still on. She became the subject of morbid fascination and a documentary. But we read that three years. And the TV was still on three years later. Apparently she had her bill set up to automatic uh, debit or something. <laughs> Just goes to show you the power of that. But seriously, how can it be in our society that someone can go unnoticed for three years? And yet we, I think all of us kind of feel that in different circumstances, in different situations, we might be that person. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago, I think, that there was a, a veteran that passed away at 99 all alone at home, and there was a great massive support that everyone went to the funeral, and, and people were kind of saying on hushed tones, you know, that's great, but maybe they should have just gone and visited him while he was still alive. There's a reality to that. We feel the tension of this one and many, even in ourselves. Now, I'm an introvert. That means I love alone time. I love to shut the door and to just relish in the silence of the room with a book or whatever, anything alone. But you know what? After a while, the silence gets a little much. After a while, I'm wondering, maybe someone will come and visit for a minute or two. After a while, we start yearning for a bit of connection. We start wanting to have a little conversation. Maybe not a big one, but, you know, just to know that there's other people out there and you're not alone. And extroverts, you know, they're touch, touching all over, talk, 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 and, you know, greeting and meeting and all the rest. But sometimes they, they get to a place where they feel, I really want to connect with somebody. I, I want to do more than just say, hi, how you doing? Isn't it great? Wah, la, la, and move on. I want, to, I want to connect. I want someone to understand me. I want, I want friendship. And I think that's something that we all can understand. And I believe that in that sense of loneliness and that sense of a desire for friendship, that the nature of God as three in one has a lot to say about this for us. In the Eastern Church, we belong to the heritage of the Western Church, the European Church. But on the whole other side of things was a whole other theological understanding in the East. The early churches, the ones that we read in Scripture, most of them are from Asia Minor, which would have landed on the Eastern Church, Ephesus, Philippi, Eastern places. And they developed this idea of the relational trinity, the idea that God is one, yes, but God is three in one, and therefore always in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
They actually came up with a name to describe that relationship. And, um, and we don't even use it much in our uh, modern Western church. We don't even think about that. We just think God is one, let's go win the world for Christ. And that's great. But there is something about understanding the God who sent his son and the Father and the Son who sent their spirit that we need to understand because it's all part of who God is and who is saving us and what he's saving us for and how we are to develop into different kinds of people. There's that passage in Ephesians that Paul says, imitate God as dearly beloved children. And when we learn that the very nature of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally in relationship, eternally knowing and being known, eternally loving and being loved, the Greek fathers called this the divine dance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship, in love, in perfection, perfect relationship from all eternity. And when we catch a glimpse of this, this this complex and mysterious nature of God as being relational, we can understand why we ache to have connection, why we ache to have friendship, particularly when we read in Scripture that God has created us in his image. Male and female, he has created us. And there is something about that that must be social. When God created the first man, his basic words were, it's not good for the man to be alone. And it says that he brought all kinds of creatures to see if there was anyone there that you know, Adam could you know, be a partner with. And there was nothing in all the created order that would work. And so God made a great sleep come over Adam, and he, it, the, literally the Hebrew says, built the woman from the man. They were built from the same material, co-equal, alike, and yet different, created for relationship. And it was only after that that everything was very good. And we've been messing it up ever since, right? (laughs) But we need to understand that creation event as not just something God did pragmatically, but it's something that reflects his own nature of relationship. The relationship um, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit really does demonstrate that God is love. And this is a unique kind of idea. Other religions have sort of tagged into that, drawn from that idea, but really the three-in-one God of the New Testament is the only God who can truly be love in and of himself because he is the only God who can love other and still be self-contained, three-in-one. Love of self is not perfect love. Love of other is love. Jesus didn't say to the disciples, love one another the way I have loved myself. Did he? No, he didn't say that. 
I'll just correct you quick in case you think maybe that's what he said. He didn't say that. He says, as I have loved you, it's love of other that represents love, perfect love. And that perfect love can only exist when there is another. God didn't create us because he was lonely. He was in perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, complete in every way, fulfilled in every way. The only reason God created you and me and this whole slew of humanity is because he wanted that love that is within himself to be experienced by us. He created us so he could love us. He created us so we could experience that deep friendship and love that he has within himself. And for a season, people did experience God in this way. And then, of course, it all fell apart. This nature, this relationship that God has in Trinity, in this three-person nature, is a love relationship that really is rooted in this idea of being perfectly known by another and knowing another perfectly. This is something that, um, that we don't experience in our relationships quite often and not perfectly ever. But I know in marriage relationships and in deep friendships, this is kind of what we're going for, that they would actually know me and accept me, and that I would actually know them and accept them, and it's within that sort of raw acceptance and disclosure of all our frailties and all of our imperfections that we truly can have a friendship that is solid because we know that, well, if they'll accept me knowing that, they accept me. And we yearn for that. And yet this is exactly what we see in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is so interesting to me as I think about and read the scriptures and what other people have thought through the ages and how much this really does affect how we understand church and how we understand community. It's not just practically something that we do because we can do more together than alone, although that's true. There is something intrinsic about building community and becoming a part of a, of a group where they, people know me, know my good qualities and my irksome qualities and then my downright offensive qualities and where I'm known, yet not rejected. People don't accept me to stay where I am. They want me to, you know, move along, but not rejected. I think we all learn, yearn for that. Yearn to be accepted for who we are, not just for the image that we put out there, because we all sort of project an idea of who we are. That's what Facebook's all about. Facebook's not about real people 
talking about real things. It's about putting an image of myself out there and revealing a little bit about myself that I want other people to see how cool I am or, or all the neat thoughts that I've had. I get to think about what I'm going to say for 25 or 30 minutes and then put it up there in polished, perfect grammar. It's not real, right? All the ums and ahs and wrong words and saying, oh, I didn't mean that, all that stuff, it just scrubbed out and we're this perfect person with the smile and the great photo. I'm not saying that there's no purpose to that. I'm just saying that that's not real people. Real people are annoying. (laughs) I'm annoying. I know that. I've been married for 20, well, seven years, 28 years, going on 28. So, I mean, I know that I'm annoying. Lise knows that I'm annoying. (laughs) That's okay. Own it. But I want to work on that. I don't want to just sit there and accept it. She knows, I know, let's move forward. Another block or challenge for us with community is this idea of diversity in the midst of unity. Um, This is very difficult for us as, as people, I mean, the church growth people have long ago said that, you know, if you want to grow a big church, you got to get everybody the same. If people feel comfortable, if everybody's the same, you know, you're all earning the same money and you're all driving the same kind of cars and you all look the same and eat the same kind of foods. And you know what? That might be a sociologist's dream for building a big organization, but that is not at all what Jesus did. When he assembled his 12, he assembled people who were zealots, he assembled people who were business people. He assembled some spoiled brats who left their father in a boat with the employees mending nets, and he went off and gallivanting around Galilee, you know, following Jesus. I mean, he gathered some people who were timid and some who were doubters and some who, well, we don't even know anything about them. They're just unknowns. I mean, how much do we know about, you know, Bartholomew, really, Right? Nowhere in the nation of Israel would this group of people have ever gone to the same room to do anything, ever. They were different social groups. They had different political ideals. They were, they were just different, different ages. They, were, they did not represent the same, other than that they were Jewish people expecting the Messiah. That's about the only thing. But they didn't agree on what the Messiah would be. They didn't agree at any of that. But they agreed that they wanted to follow Jesus. And that was enough. That was enough. And with that group of people, God built his kingdom and continues to build it. And we see that when we look at the gospel community today and how it is rooted in the nature of God. Because Jesus, when he was about to go to the cross, he prayed for himself. He prayed for the 12. And then he prayed for those that would believe because of them. That's you and me. You see, we believe in Jesus because one of those apostles 
preached the gospel to someone else and they preached it to someone else and this person shared here and before you know it, the world's being caught on fire with this message of good news. And eventually here in this century, in this city, we hear the good news and respond all because those 12 were faithful to the task that Jesus had given to them. And Jesus prays for us in John 17, 11. He says this, Holy Father, protect them in your name, those that you have given to me, so that they may be one as we are one. That's what Jesus prays. Jesus prays that we would be one as he and his Father are one. That's heavy. He prays again. He continues in this long prayer. You think our pastoral prayers are long. Read John 17. And Jesus continues and he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This is, this is Jesus' prayer to the Heavenly Father. This is God the Son communicating to God the Father that we would be one just as he is one with his Father. Really, it's amazing. How is he going to accomplish this? Well, Paul goes on to tell us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit indwells us. God's Spirit is inside of each of us. And as we connect, God's Spirit is pulling us together to have a life together. But there are challenges to this life together. There are challenges all over the place. The first one is forgiveness. Because when you live with people, fallen people, people who, who make mistakes, people who do bad things from time to time, we're going to get hurt. Someone's going to say something and we're going to get hurt. Someone's going to do something, we're going to either misinterpret it or interpret it properly and we're going to be hurt and we're going to get mad and we're going to disagree and we're going to fight. And we think it's more important to be right than to be one. Fortunately, God doesn't think that. Otherwise, he would have scorched this planet long ago because he's right and we're wrong, and yet he chose to forgive. And he calls us to a similar path. One that says, you know what? I might be right and you might be wrong, but I'm going to forgive you. I choose to forgive you. I choose to pass over this offense. And I do not want this to affect the unity that we can have in Christ. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus. That's maturity. If we were allowed to hold grudges against those who never came to ask us for forgiveness, we'd all be hateful people. Because only about half the people, if that, who ever have hurt us have ever actually acknowledged it or, or asked for forgiveness. We have to make a choice to forgive even if the other person is oblivious to what they've done. That's what following Jesus is all about. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They were oblivious to what they were doing. 
Jesus didn't hang on the cross and said, I'm not going to forgive one of you until you don't ask me. You better ask me. That wasn't his, that wasn't his mentality. He asked for us, God to forgive them even, because, even when they didn't understand. And we need to be showing the same character as Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 3.13, make allowance for each other's faults. <gasps> faults, oh dear. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Hmm. Doesn't look like that's a, a negotiation point for us. Kind of looks like it's something that we need to just simply accept and do, even when it's hard. Equally challenging is this idea of transparency, of being known and knowing. We want to build, uh, like I said about Facebook, we want to build this projected idea of who we are. We want to present ourselves in the best possible light. We want to be the person who's got it all together, who always says the right thing at the right time, who always makes the phone call just when it's needed. We want to be that person. And as best as we can, we try to project that when we go out into public. We want to present ourselves as, you know, having it all together. When in reality, you know, we're hurting and we're empty. And there are times when we just don't know if we want to get out of bed. We're grieving. We feel lost sometimes. And alone. Henry Cloud once said that... Uh, that the church often is a group of people who say that they're doing okay, but inwardly are on a trajectory of sickness, while in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have a group of people who are saying they're sick, but they're on a trajectory of healing. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting point, that when you come together and you simply admit your brokenness and you admit that you're not there yet, there's a trajectory of healing that is good. We need to be a church where we are on that trajectory. We can't expect perfection. We can't expect to overcome years and years and years of, of having to perform just right and look just right. But we can at least get on a trajectory where we understand that there will be no transformation in our lives, no healing in our lives until we have authentic relationships with other people who know us for who we are. Instead of this ideal that we put out there. And as we enter into that life, that God life, that relational existence, we, we will need to shower all of our relationships with grace and have that showered upon us as well. And then finally, this idea of difference. We need to understand and embrace the differences that exist in our community. It's in the differences that, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron, they say, right? I mean, it's in those places where we rub against each other hard that we, what's revealed is the roughness in our own soul. You know, it's a revealing time. If we were all the same and just rolling around and everything perfect like a big bag of marbles and you know everything is just smooth and wonderful, well, 
besides being incredibly boring, um, we would never get anywhere. The fact is, I'm not. I'm just a rock with rough edges and dirt, and I'm just rough, and I need to be polished. And I need to be polished by God, yes. We're all okay with God polishing, but you know what? God called us into community because I also need to be polished by you. Your strengths transform me in my weakness. And my strengths help transform you in your weakness. And together, as God's people, with his spirit at work in each of us and in us and among us, we begin to experience a transformation that is real and measurable and obviously absolutely incredible to experience. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There is unity and there is difference. And in the family of God, there are different parts, as Paul says. And each part has a function, has a place. And we need each other in order to truly live out the life that God wants us to live. As we peer into the three-person nature of God, we can begin a journey. A journey where we seek unity and learn to forgive. A journey where we seek friendship and learn transparency. A journey where we seek grace and learn to embrace difference. Let's pray together. Father of all creation, give us eyes to see your glory and give us a vision for our new life together. Jesus, Son of God, give us hearts that embrace the forgiveness that you have brought to us through the cross so that we can extend the same grace to one another. Holy Spirit, Surround us and protect us. Give us life in you. Make us one with you. Teach us as spirit-filled people to build our relationships around the traits that mark your very nature. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our gracious God, fill us with your love so that we can experience life as you intended it. May the world see the depth of our love for one another and know that you alone are God and that you have sent your Son to save us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.